Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pod of thunder and rock and roll. And are you ready for the Duff McKagan joke of the week? Here we go. Hey, Chris Jericho. Duff McKagan calling you. I uh, want to let you know, uh, you know, my grandpa, he started walking five miles a day when he was 60. And uh, now he's 97. We have no idea where he is. Thank you very much. All right. That's a good one. Uh, wow. That means that the uh, grandpa would be over 150 miles away. For 37 years of walking five miles. Oh, actually, more than that. What am I talking about? I can't do math. I'm just here to uh, laugh at Duff. A great, great guy. Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. Delivers every Friday his joke of the week. Without fail, uh, not always the last, but this week was a good one. We got both. Thanks, Duff. And you know who else is delivering the laughs every week? Raven. The Raven Effect just hit 100 episodes and I joined Raven and got inside of his weird head with Busby for the huge episode. Check it out if you haven't. Uh, Disco Inferno also crashed the pod, uh, even though he's been banned from the Raven effect. I guess he snuck under the wire. And Raven also finally brought back the name game uh, and the, the the biggest rock anthems of all time was another game we played. I know longtime Raven listeners love all of Raven's uh, gimmicks on his show. And if you haven't listened to The Raven Effect yet, you should. It's funny. It's cool. They talk wrestling. They talk pop, uh, they talk pop culture. They talk about whatever Raven is thinking about with changes, directions, what, 15 times in a minute. Uh, very, very funny stuff. Raven's got great stories from his wrestling career. Uh, so much stuff uh, that Raven's always into, and he tells you about it every week with his sidekick, Busby Berkeley. Episodes come out every Monday. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you don't miss an episode and don't miss one of Raven's uh, strange and wacky musings every week. I subscribe to that one, and not just because it's on the Jericho Network. I'm actually a fan of the show. So join me in listening to The Raven Effect and send Raven some suggestions for the name game as well. That's Raven. Uh, so on Talk is Jericho today here, uh, doing something a little different. I've got one of the only two billionaires Actually, three billionaires that I personally know on the planet. And it's not Vince McMahon. It's not uh, Tony Khan. It's the other billionaire who happens to be my neighbor, lives just down the street from me. Uh, Mark Cuban's longtime business partner. Uh, that's right, the Mark Cuban who owns the Dallas Mavericks and Access TV, who got RKO'd by Randy Orton on Raw many years ago. My guest today is his partner, Todd Wagner. Basically, the reason why you can now stream music and movies and even podcasts like Talk is Jericho on any device. Todd and Mark Cuban pioneered online listening, online streaming, and sold it for billions of dollars. He's talking all about that. Todd is good friends with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I met uh, Arnold uh, at Todd's house. We smoked a cigar together. Uh, George Clooney as well. And Talk is Jericho alumni Chris Tucker. He's got a great story about how Chris saved Todd's life on 9-11. Crazy but completely true. Todd's also had uh, Billy Joel and John Mellencamp play his private birthday parties. Ah, oh, to be a billionaire. Uh, Todd is a self-made billionaire, and he's sharing some advice on what it takes to do that. Uh, you might learn something as well. Maybe you, too, can be a billionaire. Let's talk about it right now. How to be a billionaire with Todd Wagner right here on Talk is Jericho. All right, so... um. In my lifetime, I've known two uh, billionaires, and one of them I've worked for for 17 years, and he's a good friend of mine, but totally crazy. And then there's Todd Wagner, who's also a friend of mine. I don't know if you're crazy or not, but the funny thing is you literally live about 10 minutes down the street from where I live, and we met through, uh, through our kids at school. But it's so interesting to me because we've talked many times and been to your house many times, and it's, a, it's a pretty much a city here. 
but I'm, I'm sure like just looking around and all these different pictures and awards and all the stuff that you've kind of been through it's such a interesting story that i wanted to talk to you about about you know your journey to become literally a billionaire right yep yep thanks for having me chris yeah no yeah absolutely and then once again it's kind of it's not like a, a bragging thing but like like an actual billionaire which is such a crazy thing and the, we were at this house before at your house last year when you had a, a fundraiser for arnold schwarzenegger which was amazing and yep. you guys are pretty good friends it's even crazier because of where i grew up so i grew up in gary indiana um which is not exactly a hotbed for fame and fortune, except I guess for Michael Jackson, yeah. who, who was born about two miles from my house. Wasn't is it Letterman from there too? Letterman's from Indiana, okay. but I think he's from Muncie or something, gotcha, like, that. something like that. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so I grew up in Gary, where most people work in the steel mills. It's very blue collar town. It's gotten worse over the years. In fact, when I take you know friends and family back to the house I grew up in, they won't get out of the car. Mm-hmm. It's become kind of an example of everything that can go wrong in a city when an industry shuts down but was the uh, was a steel mill? it was steel, steel mills mill, yeah. and at one time i mean it was a it was a great city my grandfather was there my, my my dad grew up there in fact at our home i've got the blocks from a building that my my grandpa built in downtown gary on 35th and broadway that he built in 1925 and i pulled the blocks out and it's it's in our home now so i can kind of pay homage to him every day and um, it was a city that everybody was proud of, and then it just went down. And now, mm-hmm. I think it's probably got about the highest murder rate per capita in the country. Very similar to like a Flint, Michigan, or something along those lines. Absolutely, right? or yeah. Detroit, or any of those right. kinds of towns yeah. where you know the educational system breaks down. You know, in 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 Detroit, I think there's only, and, and I may be off, but approximately say 11% of the people that are college graduates. In Seattle, it's over 60%. I mean, that's that's how these cities start to deteriorate. If we can't figure out a way to get people an education that can lead to a job, that's where all the bad stuff, stuff starts. But anyway, so yeah, so that's where I'm from. Went to college at Indiana University down so you, in Bloomington. You want to try and get out of Muncie, obviously. That's your mission. Yeah, you want to get out of Gary if you can. Sorry, Gary, I mean, yep. so that's amazing. It's certainly, uh, it's a, as I say, it's a great place to be from, mm-hmm. not necessarily a place you want to go back to. You know, a lot of people go back to their hometowns. That's not going to, now Chicago is a wonderful city, which is only 30 miles away, but Gary is, is not a place typically people want to, want to go back to. So I so went what to was your mindset to try and get out of town. Like, yeah. I mean, it was just, what did you want to do? I didn't know. Okay. I really didn't know. But I knew, and I learned from my parents. I mean, I was very blessed. I had great parents. And they instilled in me the importance of education. So I knew that if I could get educated, I would have a chance for great things to happen. But I knew if I didn't, that I wouldn't. And so part of it is, you know, not to fast forward where we'll eventually get to, but, you know, when you've got a country now where one out of two minorities don't graduate and only seven out of 10 kids finish high school, that's where problems come from. That's where all the issues come from. Like, for example... 75% of young people in this country between 18 and 24 can't even enlist in the military. Why? Because you have to be a high school graduate, which already knocks out about 50%. You have to pass a basic fitness test and you can't have a criminal record. Hmm. So we only have 25% of the young people in our country that can even, if they so chose, enlist. 
that's where, you know, and so part of what, as, as we'll get to it later, as my life evolved, I think growing up in Gary and witnessing a town just decay, a town just go from something that was blue collar, but, but a great place to grow up to a town now that people literally drive through. Whenever I say I'm from Gary, people look at me like, really? <laughs> but that's what it was like. And, and that's the beginnings of, I think, what instilled in me later to, to try to give back, et cetera. To get out, right? So you go to, 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 to college, you mentioned the university, to be... I didn't know, so I studied business. Gotcha. Um, I didn't know any better about what was out there. We, as I said, grew up in a town where I didn't really understand Wall Street. I didn't understand the other options of what I could do with my life. So I just studied business, and in those days, it was either marketing, finance, or accounting. There were no other choices. Yeah, the famous marketing. Was like, yeah. What does that even mean? And nobody even knows what it is or means. And so I, I chose accounting because it was the most difficult. Got through, took the CPA exam, passed it, did an internship, and realized for me that accounting was not going to be my life's work. It was like, okay, it was a great place to start. It opened the doors. I always tell kids now, your number one job when you're growing up is to keep your doors open because mm -hmm. nobody knows where your life's going to end up. And, and if you're gonna, if you're going to participate in the journey of life, you have to be able to have doors that are still remain open. Whereas every time you decide, Oh, I'm not going to finish high school or I'm not going to do this. You've closed doors. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean your life won't end up the way you want it to, but you've certainly made it more difficult. So I, I'm an accounting major. I do an internship in Chicago and am not sure what's next. So my dad had always instilled in me to get an advanced degree. So I decided to go to law school. Hmm. And off I went to University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Um, by the way, I should take one step back. While I was in college, there was a guy that I knew at the same time that would come back into my life later uh, named Mark Cuban. But hmm. we were there at the same time. And, and knew each other, and I had a fraternity brother who, who worked in the bar. Is Mark from Chicago, too? Mark's from Pittsburgh. Gotcha, okay. Also a still mill town. Yeah. So anyway, so I'm off to law school, go to University of Virginia in Charlottesville, almost go back to Chicago after graduation and decide, I'm going to do something else, I'm going to go to Texas. Um, so I take a job in Dallas. I was the master plan, which of course didn't turn out, which is what I always tell people, which mm -hmm. is your master plan never turns yeah. out. You know, you have to pivot, you have to move, you have to be prepared for what life throws you is I was going to be a real estate lawyer and then get hired by a developer. And what I wanted to be was a real estate developer. I wanted to be on the business side of real estate, build, you know, communities, build high rises, be a part of development. And there were two big companies in Dallas at that time, Trammell Crow and Lincoln Properties. And so I thought that was going to be the plan. Of course, I get there and the economy goes bust. Real estate is a bust. And all of a sudden, I'm working on bankruptcies and all sorts of things that I didn't want to do. So I practiced law for seven years. And it's funny, you know, you think things that are really important then that don't turn out to be important. I wanted to show that I could make partner in a law firm. So I didn't want to quit until that happened. So I, I finally get there. I've spent the last year prior to that talking to everybody in town. Will you hire me? I want to get on the business side. Of course, no takers because that's kind of the way life works sometimes. Even though my, my resume was in business and I'd been a business and an accounting major, 
I'd gone to law school. Mm -hmm. So that kind of invalidated them to me. They, they put me in the lawyer bucket as to what I was going to be qualified to do. But the turning point came during that year. I'd met this guy who had talked about various things with this technology, but the biggest was to be able to take sporting events and be able on a wireless network to be able to make it available to people. Like streaming? Well, it wasn't even streaming. It predates streaming. So I went to the only person I knew in Dallas that was in technology because 20 years ago, no one was in technology. It's not today where everybody wants to be in technology. Right. Then nobody was and in what technology. what year was this? This would have been 94, 95. Gotcha. So I go to Mark Cuban, mm -hmm. who is a, an acquaintance from college. And I start talking to him and I said, well, there's this guy. He's talking to me about being able to take sporting events, put it on a wireless network, allow people to have handheld devices, and you'd be able to listen to sporting events. Now, 20 was, years later, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure the time was like, you're crazy. <laughs> Everybody was looking at him. Well, Mark said, you know what? I don't know that that makes sense, but I will say this. There's this wired network that's coming out called the internet. You ought to really look into that and understand it. And that was one of those moments in my life that was a game changer because he followed that up with, and if you find something interesting to do, I'll do it with you. Hmm. And those words st stuck with me because you have to remember Mark had already started. Mark is what I call a very pure entrepreneur. He had already started a company in his early 20s that predates the one that Mark and I did together called Microsolutions. And they sold local area networks, which means just hooking computers together. Back in those days, computers lived by themselves. Mm -hmm. They didn't talk to each other, right? You couldn't print on something right, with right, five right. computers. So he was the first. And I always tease him later. I'm like, that was the billion-dollar idea. <laughs> but he did that one first, and he sold it to CompuServe for, I don't know, $6 million or whatever. He had taken his share of that money, and he was in L.A., taking acting lessons and trading stocks. Right, just doing, I remember I read about that, just hanging out with his friends and doing what he always wanted to do. So he came back to Dallas. I saw him in Dallas, and that's when that conversation happened. And of course, I walk out, and I'm like, well, that's great. I don't have any brilliant idea, but if I do, at least I know somebody that thinks enough of me that he would do it with me, because that meant a lot. Because Mark, in my mind, was, oh my God. Well, he was already a millionaire. He's already a millionaire yeah. in his 20s. Mm -hmm. So I walk out, I come back to him, as I said, a few months later with this, and he decides to get involved. And I think we both knew very early this had the potential to be huge, but you never know. So it was the very early stages. I was the CEO. Mark was the chairman. We worked like nobody's business, you know. We put together this idea of being able to watch a sporting event on a handheld device. Yeah, so how it started was... Back in those days, 20 years ago, right, you had, you had slower modem speeds. You had 14.4 right. modems and 28.8 modems. And, and the technology to take something analog and what's called digitize it. And it's just little zeros and ones. It's just little digital bits that run through pipes allowed you to be able at first to just do voice. Because the pipes weren't fat enough to even do music, let alone video. Mm. So you could only do voice. And a company named Zing, X-I-N-G, first came out with it, along with Real Network, started by a Microsoft alum, Rob Glazer, to allow you 
to digitize these files and what became the word that everybody knows today, but we kind of began it, stream. Mm. So we took literally the very first radio station, to my knowledge, in the world and put it online. So we went to KLIF in Dallas and said, we want to put your radio station on the internet, to which, of course, they look at you like, why would we do that? Mm. Said, well, I don't know, but maybe you'll reach people in the office. So radio always had the problem. Of course, everything's changed so much, but radio in those days had the issue of you couldn't get reception in the office. Really? So it was blocked. You know, you're in a high rise. You can't get that station. So they were, they loved people in their cars, of course, but when people got to work, they had reception issues, the radio, you'd have the antenna up all that. So what we learned very quickly was they were interested because they could reach people in the office during the day. So it became known as kind of the in-office day part, which was very valuable to these radio stations. And that's how it all began. Then you fast forward a couple of years, we have become one of the five, 10 most popular websites in the world. What was it called? It was first called AudioNet mm-hmm. because, love to say we'd figured it all out, but we hadn't. We only thought about audio. Mm-hmm. We hadn't thought about video was gonna come within a couple of years. So it was called AudioNet. Then when we went public in 98, we used that to rebrand the company. So we, we then renamed the company broadcast.com. Uh, Mark, you would go to broadcast.com to listen to, you know, the Chicago bears versus the New York Yankees or whatever. That's exactly right. So unlike what other folks did eventually in that space, we legally went out and struck contracts with 500 different radio stations, sports teams, television stations, fortune 500 companies to broadcast their earnings calls, their product launches. We had 40 huge satellite dishes on our roof in Dallas so we could pull feeds legally Mm -hmm. from all these entities to broadcast a Blackhawks game or a Cubs game or a Cowboys game to people all over the world. So in those early days, we called ourselves the cure for homesickness. You know, if you lived, you have to remember in those days, if I lived in a city outside of the one I grew up in, I'm not getting the Cubs games or the Blackhawks games or anything like that. And for Mark and I, right, Indiana basketball. And so this was a way, especially, you know, people living in Europe, people living other places in the world, this was a huge eye-opening event to be able to listen to something anywhere in the world. That, I always say, was the beginnings of streaming media. So we were way, way ahead of anyone in that space of understanding how to stream to a large audience. In those days, that was incredibly complicated to do. So we were the first to do the Victoria's Secret Fashion Show online. We were the first to do the Super Bowl, obviously with the permission of the NFL. And we would do these large ticket events because we had the expertise to figure out how to reach a large audience because it was incredibly difficult because of last mile issues for streaming to reach lots of people in America and around the world, because in those days it was even an issue to sure. be able to reach people in Europe, et cetera. So anyway. It's basically an early version of iHeartRadio or satellite radio, Sirius XM sort of a thing. Now, how are you monetizing that? Are people buying subscriptions or are they selling ads? So we, we learned a couple things to do. 
with the radio and TV stations, they didn't want to pay. So instead, we learned, because we had ex-radio and TV folks that were working for us, to ask them for over-the-air inventory because they had extra. So we'd ask for five spots or 10 spots, Monday through Friday, 10 to 5P. And then we accumulated all those spots. At first, we thought we'd use it to advertise, but instead we resold it. So we turned it over to Westwood and all these other resellers and turned it into cash. Westwood One. Westwood That's One. the network we're on right now. <laughs> and we would go to them and basically say, we have all these stations. So we were taking what was in those days dubbed new media and turning it into cash by using traditional or old media mm. to do so, which was just reselling radio inventory. Then we also generated revenue by selling banner ads, which was what was done in those days. And we had huge amounts of traffic so we could do so. Plus we had an events business. So we would go to Intel or Microsoft or any of the big companies in those days and say, look, you're gonna do a product launch. Nobody's gonna know about it. But if you're on our network, think about a next generation right. network, we can reach a larger audience so that all of a sudden you're going to know about it. So we would play up not only that we had the expertise to do it, but we have more eyeballs, just like anyone would in any media business, right. which is to let people know that we're going to get more people to know about your product. So we would do that. And we would do it for Fortune 500 companies because every CEO's ego is my stock is undervalued. They just don't know enough about my company. If they knew more, they'd, they'd buy it. So we would say, hey, we can put your earnings calls on the internet. More people will be able to listen to what you're doing at XYZ Company. Your stock will go up if, if your story's still great, as opposed to just doing an earnings call now where the only people that can hear it are a few analysts and a few investment right, bankers. Right. So we were doing all of that to create what, what became and what we labeled kind of the, the first broadcast network on the internet. First cable, only there weren't cables. The first over the air, only it wasn't over the air. It was a broadcast network on the internet. And we led the way and we're way ahead. So fast forward, we go public in 1998. Uh, we do a road show, Mark and I have a blast doing it. We can tell it's going to be really successful. So when you do a road show, you basically are going city to city to talk about your company in front of buy and sell side analysts mm -hmm. in the hopes that they will place orders to buy your stock. If lots of people place orders, you'll have a really successful IPO. We did 70 one-on-one -on -one road show presentations we had 70 companies place orders, mm. which is amazing. And Mark and I had so much fun doing it. And we would just kind of like, like pimp each other during the, during the thing as you know, like there were certain lines I knew Mark always liked to say. <laughs> and since I went first, I would like use a line of his and then I'd just look at him cause I knew he would have to change <laughs> what he was going to say. And it, and it went really well. So the stock, we, we knew the demand was high. So we had priced it around, 12 to $13 a share during the road show. The bankers, which were Morgan Stanley, came to us and said, look, we think you can price it a little higher. How high do you want to go? And we said, look, we want this to be really successful. We want all the investors to do well. 18 seems like a good number. And so we went out at $18 a share. The first trade was at like $62 a share. Wow. And it closed at whatever that day, 63, and it was a 249% gain on its first day of trading, which up until that time was the largest one day gain in the history of Wall Street. 
So we were off to a great start, except the scary part, which is that you have to perform. Mm -hmm. And in those days, just like markets can get today, you know, that markets go up and markets go down. And we now had a public company and meaning you have quarterly numbers to hit, meaning you have all sorts of expectations on you, but you can't control the stock price. Mm -hmm. And people were buying into the fact that we were the first big streaming media company on the internet. So our last round as a private company, Yahoo had been an investor. Yahoo was kind of the Google of that era. They were the 800-pound gorilla. They were the big kids. They had a $100 billion market cap, and everybody kind of expected them to be the leaders. So we knew them well from them being investors, and we went to them and said, you're either going to have to compete with us or you should buy us because you own text, you own you know, the written word, you own magazines and articles and everything that people read in those days on Yahoo, but you're gonna have to get into multimedia. You're gonna have to get into video and audio streaming and we are way ahead. And maybe you can catch us, maybe you can bury us, but you could just buy us. So that's what happened. So we negotiated a deal with them. They paid $5.7 billion um, in Yahoo stock for the company and we were off to the races. Now, I always say it was amazing and it is amazing and it changed my life. But there were a couple things they didn't do. So when we sold the company, we had a deal with MGM, the same MGM that exists today, to buy their library. And we were going to library. Yeah. We were going to buy that library to stream it. Now we didn't know what that meant, mm -hmm. but we knew that probably was pretty cool. Could that someday be subscriptions? Could that someday be pay-per-view? We didn't know. Netflix or whatever. Right? That's right. And you're talking Wizard of Oz, those MGM, those famous movies. And yeah. five years before Netflix started. Mm -hmm. Five years before Reed and Ted even. Remember, the early days of Netflix wasn't even streaming. It was shipping DVDs to right, people. Right, right. So we are eight years ahead of anybody figuring out how to stream on any scale over the internet. So we hand that business, that opportunity to Yahoo. They decide not to do it because they can't figure out what the quote ROI is on that. And they pass on the deal. And, and so to this day, I'm like, that was Netflix <laughs> that we gave them. And we had another company we had bought called SimpleNet, And that was user generated videos which was another business they didn't want or know what to do with, which of course was the precursor to YouTube. YouTube, right. So technology is a really funny thing. Obviously, I'm, Mark and I are blessed. I'm blessed every day. But when I think about what it could have been, <laughs> yeah, of course, what we were building and what we were doing, who knows? Mm -hmm. I mean, you never know. And, and it's always easy to second guess. But those were some really big ideas that we were way ahead on because of where we were in the space. So, so when you're talking about selling for, for 5.7 billion, and then obviously there's, you know, whatever the clerical fees is it basically splitting in half, half for Mark, half for you? No, because you have ownership groups. So you have lots of people that own shares in the company. I think, I think I owned about, we were lucky. We still owned a relatively large stake. So I owned about, close to 20% of the company and Mark owned maybe 25% of the company or more because he had put in in the first round. So I think between us, we had, 
you know, 40 to 50% of the company at that point. You're walking out of there a billion. We're okay. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We're okay. So how does that change your life? I mean, obviously, I would assume over the years leading up to this, you're making some good money. You're probably fairly affluent at that point. You know, millionaire, whatever. Just a, Okay, but, okay, fine. Now you're shaking your head. So you're making a decent living, but suddenly you walked out of this two-hour meeting or whatever it is, and you're a billionaire. I was a, how, how, do, how do you, you know, accept that? I, I don't think any of us can wrap our arms around yeah. it. You, you can't wrap your head around it. I, I remember when I first took my job in Dallas as a lawyer, one of, the, one of the corner office partners said, Todd, if you never do anything else, just coming from Gary and getting to where you are now Good point. is really amazing. And, I, and, and that took hold. Then I remember when I resigned from the law firm all those years later, and I went to the big corner office partner, and I said, sir, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to resign <laughs> from the firm. I want to try this business My thing. corner office partner, that's great. <laughs> and he looks at me like, what are you doing? Yeah. You're, you're a lawyer. I go, sir, with all respect, I really think I'm a business person. I really believe I'm an entrepreneur, and I need to do this. I cannot continue. He goes, you're going to be back here begging me for your job in six months. <laughs> I said, well, I hope not yeah. because I'm going to really try and give this a go. And of course you fast forward when we went public and we were on the cover of the wall street journal, New York times and blah, 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 blah. Somebody took the, the newspaper into his office and he's like, get this out of here. <laughs> and so there, there are those moments like that where it is hard to understand. We went the day we went public. So we're in New York, we're on wall street, Mark and I, and everybody go down to this bar called Harry's. And we, and of course, remember it was like a parlor game in those days when all these internet companies were going public. So every time Lou Dobbs or any of the announcers on TV said broadcast.com, you had to do a shot. So we were lining them up and just, I mean, <laughs> it was, it, it was more than you can imagine. I mean, Mark's just a kid from Pittsburgh. I'm a kid from Gary. And all of a sudden you do know your life has changed forever. You know, there's no going back. To, way, to the way your life was before, good or bad. Um, it's just flat out changed. And I remember, you know, when you had said, how do you get your arms around it? I remember this girl I knew saying, you don't understand how different your life's going to be. Yeah, I do. I get it. And she goes, you have no comprehension. You just think you've made a few bucks, but now it's access to all the people that you otherwise would not have right. access to. That's what changes. And that all of a sudden people, your opinion matters. People care what you have to say before you're just, yeah, you, you're you a power. Now you're, you know, before you're a lawyer, people listen, but they don't. Now, all of a sudden you can have meetings with lots of different people. You can learn from people that you would have never, ever been able to get access to. And she was right. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those moments in your life that you realize there's there's just no going back and right. so then you just look forward well like you said too now you're also a celebrity as well you know you're on the news and people know your name and all this sort of thing and you're mentioning we're in your office here and there's pictures like you name somebody it's on the wall there's u.s presidents there's Arnold schwarzenegger there's tiger woods there's you know bill murray and bob de niro and all these bob robert de niro uh you mentioned it gives you access to these people in what way because you're invited to all the big hollywood parties now or how does it working well so after we sold, Yahoo offered me to stay on as chief operating officer, which is kind of the number three at Yahoo, at the big company, the parent, which everybody said I should take. And of course I didn't. And 
and and it was for a couple of reasons, but mostly because Mark and I were used to kind of just calling the shots. And I, at Yahoo, I knew I wasn't going to be the top person. There was going to be somebody else. And when you're an entrepreneur, and I really believe that that I am an entrepreneur, you, I, I have a quote I may read for you at some point, but you really don't like to be constrained in certain ways. You want to be able to do your thing the way you want to do it. And that concerned me. And honestly, the other thing was all my shares would have been locked up, meaning all the liquidity that I would have would be gone mm. because now I would be an officer at Yahoo and I would be subject to how Yahoo performed as opposed to what we were doing. Mark, of course, within six months had, had resigned and had bought the Dallas Mavericks and Everyone knows the rest of Mark's story. I kind of didn't know what I was going to do next and, and was deciding. But in that interim period, I knew what I really wanted to do was try to give back a little bit. I was just, again, lightning in a bottle is the only way you can describe what happened to us. Anybody who is successful and you, you know that same feeling, there's an element of luck. We all know we work hard. We hope we're smart. But there's luck and there's timing involved too. Timing, yeah. And and anybody who's successful that doesn't acknowledge that there's an element of all, I always say there's the huge success is a four way intersection of luck, timing, hard work, and smarts. But you can only control two of those. The other two, you have to have a little mm-hmm. luck. Timing and luck, yeah. It, it just doesn't happen otherwise. And people, the ones that I don't respect are the ones that think it would have happened regardless. There is an element of luck. Now, I will say, and I'm sure you agree with this, almost every wildly successful person I've seen, there's certain traits about all of them. They, they work like crazy. They have a real aptitude for what they do. They treasure and want their success. And that's why when I see the folks like a George Clooney or an Arnold or any of them, it's not a it's not a complete surprise that they're successful people. They have that special something that allows them to do that. But there was also an element of luck and timing for any of them and any of us and what we do. And so I try the best I can to always remember that and to always know that. And so the first thing I wanted to do was start my foundation and figure out a way to try to give back. Um, And for me, that was at risk kids because again, back to the Gary part of the story and feeling like that was something that I wanted to do. So now back to access. So I see Arnold on a, on a show talking about this organization called the Inner City Games. It eventually got renamed After School All-Stars. So I go out to LA and I ask for a meeting. And of course I get the meeting and I say, here's what I wanna do. I wanna be on the national board. I wanna bring a chapter to Dallas and I wanna start a technology program for inner city kids. They say yes to everything. I write a good sized check and we're off to the races. Now, are you meeting with Arnold or Arnold's foundation? I'm meeting with Arnold. And, and Arnold was a very, hand, Arnold is incredibly special, my opinion, around the celebrity world of giving back and that many, many I know talk about it, but Arnold walks it. Does it, yeah. He does it. And when he commits to something, he shows up. When he's supposed to be there, he's there. He is incredibly unique, in my opinion, in the industry of folks that really walk the walk. So I got to know him, obviously, very well through the years. And that was my beginnings of of philanthropy. And 
like every entrepreneur at first philanthropy meant to me was I was going to build it myself. I was going to make it better. I was going to do it. And that started with a technology program I call, I called miracles, which was to put these labs and all these things and have measurement and, and, and do all these things for the kids around the country. Eventually I merged that with the boys and girls clubs so that it could reach more kids. And of course, when I merged it, everyone's like, what do you mean merge? Nobody merges in the nonprofit world. I'm like, well, in my world they do. <laughs> and, and I want to reach more kids. So that was like the first phase of my philanthropy was to, to try to put this together. Of course, as with anybody in business or life, it's gone up and down and how I wanted to try and be involved. Then it became try to support the organizations that do the best work and get out of their way. Then it, you know, it's, it's gone all through it. At the same time, after maybe two years after the sale, after I've turned down the Yahoo job, Mark has bought the Mavs, we circle back around and Mark and I decide we do pretty well together. Let's do some more stuff together. So Mark had started a cable network called Access TV. Now it was then called HDNet. Hmm. So I became the other investor in that. We launched uh, a movie production company that I ran and still run to this day called 2929 Productions, where we've made probably 20 movies. Won an Oscar. Yep. We, we've, and, and then Man we started a... Uh, theatrical distribution company called Magnolia Pictures mm. through which we've probably released 300 movies yeah, over the years. You see that all the time. Mostly small documentaries. We did the Enron documentary, Man on Wire, which was the one you were referring to that we we did win an Academy Award for. And then we also purchased the Landmark Theater chain, the national chain of theaters, the largest independent art house theater chain and we own about 60 movie theaters. So we co-own those four businesses together to this day. And that kind of began my foray into media. Now we dabbled in media because everything about broadcast.com and Yahoo was media, but this was more the traditional media that everybody's used to making movies and owning movie theaters and reading scripts and going on movie sets and all that stuff. So that became then the next kind of chapter of my life was doing that. You know, it's interesting going back to, for example, the Schwarzenegger thing. I find like in, in even some of the guys that I've met that I'm um, pretty close to, like other celebrities, quote unquote, when you first meet somebody, there's always the intimidation factor of like, oh my gosh, it's Arnold. And I don't know Arnold 1% as well as you do, but I've had three or four interactions with him. And you can tell once you get past that, he's just a dude. Like we were here smoking cigars at your house last time. And I told him, man this cigar is getting me high. He goes, why do you think I smoked them? And it's just like, you're just like a total dude that you just want to hang out with. Do you have a lot of experiences with a lot of these guys where now you're just guys hanging around having a couple of drinks? Yeah, I think, you know, some, it's like everybody in the world, everybody in that, you have some people you meet mm -hmm, and you really right. like them and some people you meet and you don't. Mm -hmm. and, and it's no different in their world. And so there's some that I really like and I consider them friends and some that I meet and I would rather not do anything else with them. Sure. And, and so that runs the gamut. And yes, Arnold, Clooney, some of those, not to name drop, but some of them that I've met. It's not name dropping yeah. if you're actually they're friends just, with They're them, just yeah. good guys. Yeah. They happen to be famous, but they're just good guys. And you'd want to have a beer with them no matter what. And then there's other ones, and I'm not going to tell you sure. their names, <laughs> that you don't want to have a beer with them. And you're going to do the minimal amount you have to to get through the project, whatever you're dealing with them because they're so catered to and they're so encased mm -hmm. in who they are. Bubble. And you see this. Yeah. 
that you just literally can't believe that they think they're entitled to some of the things they're entitled to. And that bothers me probably the most because of where I'm from, how I grew up, what I've done. And yeah, okay, fine. I've, I've had some things that have gone my way, but boy, I don't like it when people just feel like they're so entitled to everything Mm -hmm. and the way they interact with people and the way they treat people. And so when you find the good ones, I really try to stay involved with them. You know, like Chris Tucker, who I know you've met now and all those, there's some that I just think they're the nicest guys and they're the ones I've stayed in touch with and are friends and then others, no. Tell us a story about how Chris Tucker saved your life. (laughs) So back on September 11th, I actually on September 10th of 2001, I was in New York with Chris and we just kind of started to get to know each other. I'd kind of started to dabble into the movie industry and he was one of the first guys I'd gotten to know and we'd really hit it off and we just liked hanging out. So he, he invited me down to Madison Square Garden where he was performing with Michael Jackson on September 10th. And he says, oh, come with me. We'll go down, we'll hang out, we'll go out. And I said, fantastic. So I go down to Madison Square Garden. I'm, you know, backstage. I get to meet Michael. It's unbelievable. So much fun. And he does his thing and he does his, you know, his moonwalk dance and everybody goes crazy. And then we decide to go out and we go out (laughs) and we're out. And, uh, and there are a lot of folks out that night with us, some that are celebrities, et cetera, that have been at the show and other things. And we're just having a blast. And so there's a guy I'm supposed to meet the next morning at windows on the world at 9am, which is the twin towers. Yep. Uh, 95th floor of which. I don't believe anyone survived that was there. And I called the gentleman up and I said, hey, do you care if we just push it back to 10 a.m.? And so that's why Chris always says that because of being out with Chris that night, I pushed that meeting back. So when I went downstairs that next morning, the first plane had hit. And and of course, as everybody knows, nobody knew why. I went back up to my room because obviously there was nothing to go down to when and saw on tv when the second plane hit Mm. and then of course everybody knew what was going on and you know i eventually was able to to track chris down and a lot of folks of course nobody knew if there were other bombs in the city it was weird because i didn't live in new york i just happened to be in new york yeah yeah. how was it for you to actually be in new york when the attack was happening it was surreal Mm. and then i still remember that first evening walking around new york and i'd never heard new york quiet because there were no cars on the streets there was no horns honking there were no taxi cabs and we just walked up and down the streets and it was a really crazy feeling because again nobody knew if there were more bombs if more things were going to happen um and it took like four or five days before you could get out Mm. and chris drove off i think he drove off after the first day or two and got out um, but then, yeah, he's always, he's always said that and he's right. <laughs> and so it's kind of our, our running thing. And it's, you know, look, it's one of the bonds that we have because I still, I still have the program from that night. Hmm. Um, I've kept it all these years from that night, uh, seeing Michael Jackson. The night How before. was it meeting Michael? You guys are both from the same town. <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. I mean, I only got to, to obviously shake his hand and say hello for a minute. Did you say, I'm from Gary too. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it was the only time I ever met him but it was great and, yeah uh, and i really enjoyed it did you ever used to see any of the jacksons around in gary i was gonna ask you that before they were 
to my knowledge, gone by then. Gotcha. You know, I always tease. I lived in Gary. They lived there till you know they were five, and of course, some of them were older than Michael. And then they all moved to L.A. So I, I actually grew up there, but they were no longer <laughs> yeah. there. Who are some of the other guys that you really get along with? You mentioned Tucker. You mentioned Arnold. I think, you know, Quincy Jones, who's up there. I'm, I mean, Quincy is a good friend, and I think he's just such a nice man. And he's one of those who's got a story for everything. Yeah. And and so I've always enjoyed, you know, my time with him. My favorite Quincy story is when I went to his house, and we all know this legendary record producer, you know, greatest. Produce thriller. Yeah. Yes. I mean, he's, he's the guy. And I'm in his house, and he can't wait to show me all his new equipment. He's got, it's all duded out with Crestron and all this stuff. And he's, he wants me to hear this new artist. He goes, I want you to hear this. It's amazing. It's like, sure. So he goes and gets, and of course, it doesn't work. And then he does another thing, and it doesn't work. And I'm sitting there just kind of like, <laughs> okay, this is like the guy <laughs> in music. And he can't get his Crestron system to work. So he eventually just pulls out a boom box, shoves <laughs> it in there, and plays it. Old and, school. Yeah, and old school because nothing else would work. I'm like, Quincy, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's technology, dude. That's Happens to all of us. He's the producer. He's not the engineer, man. <laughs> How about Bill Murray? Last year we came and watched you play at Pebble Beach with Bill Murray. He's one of your partners. He's quite the uh, trip. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Bill. Bill was probably... You know, everybody has that boyhood idol of who they watched. Bill Murray was my favorite growing Chicago up. Chicago guy, right? Yeah, yeah, Chicago guy. And his early movies like Stripes and all those were just, I mean, I know every line. <laughs> and and so he was, if I could have picked someone that I wanted to, you know, meet someday, he would have been right near the top of the list. And so I first met him at a golf tournament that he hosts, a fundraiser called Caddyshack that they have in Jacksonville. And I got to play with him that day. And I tried to not, you know, I wanted to start, you know, spouting off lines from stripes to him, but I kind of yeah. held myself back. Uh, <laughs> that's the fact, Jack. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And uh, I, I held myself back. We, we got to know each other. And then I saw him the next year there. And then I got in, quote, the inner group because I eventually got his, his cell number. Wow. And that's when you know with Bill you're in because that doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> And uh, we just, so I played with him last year at Pebble Beach in the Pro-Am, which was so much fun. Of course, in the middle of almost every swing and putt was Bill saying something, uh, which is the way Bill does it. And of course, the fans love him. And you have the, the biggest galleries of the whole tournament because everyone follows Bill. I, I would assume that some of the uh, hardcore, like old school guys probably hate him. Yeah, some of the pros who yeah, are the there, pros, yeah. you know, doing their, playing golf for a living aren't quite as happy. <laughs> Um, he shows up like he's wearing like like pajama pants and like a like a, a fisherman's hat and just whatever the hell he wants. I have a picture in my office where he's got his you know overalls on because that's what he wore to play golf in. And then we had a we hosted a party this year out at Pebble and he came and I mean he's just he's one of a kind. There's no one like Bill. Um, and obviously he's a huge Cubs fan, so I saw him the year when the Cubs won the World Series mm -hmm. at a couple of the games at Wrigley Field, and it was great. I just, you know, I think he's amazing. I want to talk more about your philanthropy, but but, but just as, as as two dudes sitting here, like, you know, if you're fortunate enough to have some extra cash, like once in a while I'll go splurge. Like I bought like a 67 Hofner bass, the old Paul McCartney violin-shaped thing. It was like an original. I think I paid like, you know, eight grand for it or something. I was just like, I got to have this. I know it's expensive, but I don't care. Has there been some things for you where you're like, you got to enjoy a little bit of this uh, fortune that you've uh, been lucky enough to get? What's some of the craziest things that you've bought? 
Well, you know, when I first made the money, and this has been a lot of years ago now, I just remember thinking, like I would walk into a, like a, a men's store, you know, where you would buy a suit or clothes. And I remember walking in and going, I can buy all of this yeah, I can and, buy the company yeah, instead, of, <laughs> instead of just like, can I figure out if I can afford this suit? Yeah. You're like, I can, I can get all this. And, and you know, what's funny is I didn't, I, I, we have plenty of things and I've been really blessed to do that. But what I ended up, I think splurging more on was experiences. Bingo. So for me, that was so cool. So for example, um, back many years ago, I took eight of my closest friends. We, chartered a very big plane and we went all around the world hmm. and so we stopped in like 12 cities over the course of how over long? the course of three weeks wow we went to Reykjavik we went to Prague we went to Vietnam we went to South Africa we went to Brazil and it was an amazing experience that we will always remember and so I think I opted a lot more for experiences than anything else mm -hmm. um because back in those days, I just I lived in a high rise. It was nice, but it wasn't anything special. But I loved to just do something amazing. Um, One thing I like to do too is like you know I always you know if there's certain friends that you want to just take along, it's like I can't, dude. Don't worry about it. I'll I'll take care of it. You would do because you would do the same for me if the roles were reversed. That's exactly right. You know what I mean? And what? I think that's the cool thing. Like, and I, dude, I can't. Just don't worry about it, please. Just come along. I want you to be there. Mm -hmm. Just just your presence is payment enough. That's what I would do. And, and I've been to almost all the summer Olympics for the last five or six of them. And it's always been a, you know, a fun trip, a guy's trip that we do. And I obviously take care of everybody's yeah. expenses for that very reason, because they're not going to be able to afford it on their own. And I can, and it's fun. And yeah, it's boys. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about your birthday party in Scotland. That's a good one. Yeah. So we've had, <laughs> I mean, Look, I, 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 back to the thing, it's just always experiences. It's always things that are memorable. And I always like to try to do fun things on various birthdays. One of them was in Scotland. One of them was in Dubai. I mean, on one of my birthdays, my 45th, we were in Dubai and we rode camels out in the middle of the desert. And we stayed in the Burj Al Arab, which is this amazing hotel in Dubai. And um, just did unique experience you know we went we went dune cart riding you know in the in the in the sand one of my buddies almost passed out he got so dehydrated <laughs> and and just fun things and, and back to the whole point of experiences and you know stuff to do in scotland just this last year i played at the dunhill which is the european pga tour event over there and i played in that just back to the bucket list things you know try to accumulate as much fun as you can but who, who did you have come play play your birthday party in scotland well <laughs> <laughs> we I've, a, I've actually done that craziness two or three times so for my 40th mark hosted and we had john mellencamp play in mark's backyard which was in his be backyard beyond great. fun and the one you're referring to in scotland i had billy joel play um, okay, which, so here's my question. How are you getting <laughs> Billy Joel to fly from Long Island, let's say, to Scotland? I mean, other than probably the financial things, but do you have a relationship? Or are you just, hey, Billy, uh, Todd Wagner here. <laughs> well, with, with, with Mellencamp, he was from where Mark and I had gone to school, so that was easier. Right. We didn't know him, but we knew a lot of people who knew him, and so getting him to perform was, you know, yeah, you had to, you had to write the check, but he would do it. With Billy Joel, I only knew a couple of his managers. I didn't know him. Um, and so they knew me, 
well enough that they said, we'll make the ask if you're willing to write the check. And I said, I'll write the check if he'll do it. And he did. And so he then came over. He booked a couple things around it. Okay. He was he was fantastic. Mm. And we had so much fun with him. And, you know, we got to go. I got to go up on stage with him. It was it was an another. So are, you, are you setting up a stage like in the area? Or are you going to a venue or how do you do that? So there's this place called Skibo Castle in the highlands of Scotland. And it was the summer home of Andrew Carnegie a hundred years ago, who was the wealthiest man in the world. Right. In that at that time, he grew up in Scotland, lived in the States and he would go there in the summer. So he had like 10,000 acres um, and he built this castle around it. So to this day, it's now a kind of a resort getaway place. I believe Madonna got married there. I believe Ashley Judd got married there, et cetera. And we are members there. So we went up there and they built a pavilion, mm -hmm. uh, temporary, if you will, to house Billy Joel to perform that night. And it was, how many of you guys is there? I flew over a hundred people. Okay. Um, back to your point of I wanted these people to experience Skibo and and the Highlands, so I paid for it and we chartered a big plane yeah. and I flew everybody over and we made it a week of fun. You know, for the golfers, they got to play Hickory Sticks golf, which is really fun if you're a purist. Um, every we did one night where it was a costume party and you had to live like you were in 1908 and dress in period. So be it a famous baseball player or, or whatever it might be that you wanted to be. And then part of it was to have Billy Joel perform one night, and it was amazing. Did you do a full set? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Did you did. request the songs or just let them? Yes, <laughs> I got to request the songs. <laughs> That's so great, man. But he obviously, like, it's funny because uh, I mentioned Slash to you earlier once in a while. He'll go to, like, some, you know, Arabian prince or some guy in Dubai that's, you know, paying X amount of dollars. So when Billy comes over, is he hanging out with you for a bit? Is that part of the deal? Or is it just he does the show in splits? Or He did the show. We met with him a little bit before and a little bit after, and that was fine. I mean, yeah. I didn't know him before. You know, some of them, you know, like I've gotten to know Don Henley through the years. So, Don, you know, that's a different situation, right. et cetera, et cetera. But for Billy... It, I had a thrill. It was awesome. That's great, man. And he performed. He absolutely gave everybody his money's worth. So it was it's amazing. It's like Fast Times at Ridgemont High where Spicoli says he wants to hire Van Halen to play his birthday party in his backyard. You got to do that with Billy Joel. <laughs> but you're a big music guy because I've been to uh, your party room uh, on the other side of the estate here. And there's a bunch of really cool memorabilia there. You've got a We Are the World uh, kind of sheet music signed by everybody. Yeah. You know, is that something that you like to collect, those type of uh, memento artifacts? Yeah, it's fun, you know. And I like to collect from different things. So musicians, athletes, you know, whatever the case may be. We obviously have plenty of movie memorabilia as well because of all the stuff we've done through the years. And I've kept a lot of the movie posters from the movies we've done and I've done that too. So, yeah. I, what are some of your prized possessions out of those things? Well, I've got the first movie we ever did was the Enron documentary. So I have the... It's called Enron, right? Yeah, yeah. Smartest Guys in the Room. Mm -hmm. And then... One of the early movies we made was called Good Night and Good Luck with George Clooney. Yeah, and that's an actual theatrical film, feature film, right? Yeah. And it was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Wow. And and it was a period piece shot in black and white about Edward R. Murrow. George had only directed one other movie at that point, so he was kind of untested as a director. He had shopped it kind of around town, and 
nobody had said yes. And I did, um, because I figured if George was into it and passionate and would promote it. And of course it turned out to be a home run. And so one of my prized possessions would be that script that everybody, including George, obviously autographed and signed, um, from that era and getting to go to the Academy Awards. And George was so gracious. Of course, he walked the red carpet with me. And I mean, it was fantastic because again, he didn't have to do that, but he did. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the way some of those folks are. That's why we say those folks, the, the really good ones, when you do something for them, they do something back that's for you. you. Right. Whereas, you know, a lot of them, it's a very one way yeah relationship yeah and that's the difference whereas those guys you do something it's like arnold we premiered a movie called aquila and the bee years ago with aquila and the bee aquila and the bee with angela bassett and kiki palmer it was a great movie with Lawrence fishburne it's about an inner city girl who wins a national spelling bee oh, yeah, yeah, just a fantastic yeah, family movie anyway so we premiered it in sacramento i reached out to him he was governor at the time he not only said we'll host it come premiere it he came on the red carpet with me. He walked it. He sat in the movie. That was Arnold. Mm -hmm. That's those are the folks that he didn't have to do that. It was nice enough that he even allowed us, you know, we, to to be there and have a reception. He came to the premiere and he did that. And so, like I say, there's those folks that I think are amazing, and they're always, again, if you hope, that's what life is. We do stuff for each other. Mm -hmm. But you remember that if this guy did something for me, I'm going to try and help them in return. And that's kind of way he ended up holding the fundraiser for his uh, uh, after school all stars last year. Yeah, because I would assume he can do it anywhere in America. Or was that kind of the East Coast fundraiser? Was that the fundraiser for? Well, that was again an ask. You know, they had wanted us to help them raise monies while they launched the Tampa chapter, and okay, I okay Tampa chapter. Yeah. And um, I just said, sure, we'll we'll host it. And um, he came of his own volition to to do that. And mm. so, you know, and that's really the last five years have been about trying to do this digital fundraising. So we've got this whole thing called the charity network. Is that Chidio? And it's Chidio, it's Prizio, it's Charity Buzz, and this consulting group called Global Philanthropy Group. So Charity Buzz is an online auction. It's taking everything you would do in an, you know, every business I've ever had is analog to digital. That's what all this stuff is. So charity buzz is just taking an analog gala where you might have a live auction and putting it online. Well, by putting it online, what does that do? Well, it allows people from all over the country and the world to potentially bid on something. So you have a much larger audience than if it's a, you know, hang out backstage with Bruce Springsteen that might go for $20,000 when you're in the room now you have somebody from anywhere in the world that can bid on it and be able to drive up the prices, which is what it's all about. So that's kind of the, for, for charities, I view it as a way to reach a high net worth donor, typically kind of a baby boomer thing that, that is very important to charities. But then the other thing charities want and need is access to millennials, to younger people, to really teach about giving. And that's where Prizio comes in. So Prizio, and we're going to have to get you on there someday. Mm -hmm. Prizio is people putting in $10, $30 at a time to get some amazing experience. So, for example, we did a thing around the Super Bowl with Carson Wentz of the Eagles. And you got to go to the Super Bowl with Carson, hang out with him. 
he was a quarterback that was injured, you know, just before the right. game. And uh, it raised $700,000 in five days. Oh, my gosh. In $30 increments. So you know, everybody puts in 30 bucks, like buying a, a ticket. That's right. It's like getting a raffle ticket. And, but we also put things up that are autographed. So an autographed helmet, an autographed T-shirt. So the idea is I'm getting something for my 30 or my $50. And I have a chance to get this once-in-a-lifetime bucket experience that would be amazing. But what's so great about it is, so our biggest biggest success has been for Lynn Miranda, who was the, the guy who wrote Hamilton. We raised $10 million for him last year for the Hispanic Federation oh and gosh. Planned Parenthood. And we did it through just little things like the last performance he was going to give in New York, we gave two tickets and the chance to meet Lynn backstage and the cast after. It raised $2 million. Mm. Now, the beauty of that is, Planned Parenthood, in that case, Hispanic Federation, got 50,000 new donors. Now, they may not donate again, but some of them will. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, the awareness that it generated for the cause is also important because what a lot of charities suffer from is people know about it, but they can't really get the word out. So they have the local gala and they have the step and repeat and they, you know, they do the little pictures, but there's no way to really get it out to a wider audience. Platforms like Prizio allow us to democratize fundraising, get it out to a larger group of people. And it really, to me, changes the math. So if you use Charity Buzz and Prizio together, now you're reaching a huge cross-section of people. You're raising monies from, quote, high net worth people, but you're also raising it from millennials and teaching them the habit. And then you, you lay into this the, the Chidio piece, which is, creating content and awareness and and syndicating it out with our television partners and all these things you're you're generating awareness and dollars in a digital world so mm. everything that we're doing for charity network is to raise money digitally so the gala is still going to be there all those things are still going to happen but we're trying to add new revenue streams trying to build them and new audience. worldwide. That's rather right. Than just like you said in the room. That's right. What, uh, what, as we wind down here, what are some of your future goals? Because obviously you're very philanthropy oriented. It seems like one of the, the biggest things that you do now. Um, is there some other things that you want to take advantage of more bucket list type of ideas? Well, we raised $50 million last year for charity through these companies. And I'm really proud of that. Yeah, it um, should be. It's amazing. We lose, we lose some money, and obviously I bankroll it, but I'm fine with that because my view is if we lose, a, you know, a, a, a couple of million, <laughs> you need but some tax write-offs, yeah, anyways, right? <laughs> but we're raising fifty million. That's a multiplier. That's an amplifier, you know. And so that's that's something I want to continue to grow. The other thing that I think, and this could spend an hour on, so I won't, is at some point to be able to provide people data about which charities are most effective mm -hmm. right it's been talked about for a long time but one of my dreams is to take what in essence wall street does take some of the best and brightest analysts and minds and figure out these are the 10 best veterans causes and and and, and back it up with data and back it up by somebody objective back it up by people who have understood entire industries and therefore provide some guidance so that if I have $200 to give this year, 
I can feel good that it's going to the ones. And they're going to get $200 out of it. That's right. 90 or whatever. Yeah. That's right. So it's not just, you know, there's some rating agencies and they do an okay job, but all they ever measure is overhead and overhead's fine, but it's one metric. That's not how you evaluate a business. If I, if I want to buy Netflix stock tomorrow, I don't just look at their gross margins. I look at all sorts of things to try to figure out whether that's a stock that's growing. I might look at how many new subscribers they have, how many countries are they in. They're spending $8 billion on content next year. Well, how do I feel about that? But we don't do that in the nonprofit space. And we don't know which ones are the most efficient or most effective. We look at one or two rudimentary numbers and decide, oh, well, 92% goes to overhead, so they must be okay. They may not be. They may not be. There may be an organization that, that spends more money on overhead, but is far more effective with what they do and how they reach people. But we don't know that. And, and the only way to me we can do that is through proper measurement. So very much like there's analyst reports for publicly traded companies, I would like to see some kind of reports for the large, what I would call the most publicly traded charities, so that I want to hold their feet to the fire. But if they're doing a great job, I want to know that too. I want the CEOs to have to be on Bloomberg or CNBC mm -hmm. and talk about how they're doing, as opposed to just kind of hiding in the shadows and doing what they've always done, and we can't really measure whether they're innovative or not. And especially for a lot of the cancer organizations, I think we need to know where's the progress being made? Which are the best ones? Why are some of these, these things, they go on for 40 years and we still don't know if they've right. made any real progress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just know we do another fundraiser. So that's a passion of mine. That's a dream of mine. If not me, someone else to really look at that industry because it's possible to do. Um, it just, somebody's going to need to step up and say it's time. And when I talk about it, I always thought maybe people would get pissed off about it, but they don't. They tend to be happy. They want to know. They want to know. Even though some of the charities, maybe they ought not stay in existence. Maybe mm -hmm. they should merge or they should partner or they should do it so that we are really focused on the ones that, that are doing the most good. What about for you? Bucket list things of like a place you want to go or something you haven't done yet. I want to get to my seventh continent. Ah, Antarctica? I want to get to Antarctica. <laughs> That's definitely. And I've never been I've never been to the Taj Mahal. Those are probably my oh, top okay. two at this point. We did go to Israel um, last year, and that was amazing. I'm so glad I went. We did a safari in Kenya, which was fantastic. But I would really like to get to Antarctica. Who's uh, Who are you going to hire for your next birthday party? Head Mellencamp, head Billy Joel, anybody else? <laughs> I don't know who's next. We'll have to see. Fozzie's available. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Todd, thank you so much, man. This has been great. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> All right. Thanks to my neighbor, Todd Wagner, for giving us a look into his life and his journey to become a billionaire. You see, a little hard work, a little luck, some ingenuity. Who knows what can happen? Todd did it. He's still doing it. And now he's giving back in a big way with the charity network, uh, Chidio, he calls it. Another great idea for the digital age. Todd actually uh, donated a cabin on the first uh, Jericho, Chris Jericho Rock and Rest and Rager at Sea to uh, a veteran that uh, that uh, that uh, signed up to win. He won. Todd's going to do the same for the second Chris Jericho Rock and Rest and Rager at Sea happening January 20th to the 21st uh, in 2020, going from Miami uh, to the Bahamas. And you can sign up for pre-sale booking now at chrisjerichocruise.com, especially if you're an alumni. Now's your chance to get a, a, a cabin guaranteed. 
Uh, you'll get a time slot that you can order your cabin. You can book your cabin. Uh, and don't forget, if you buy and you're one of the first 400 people to book your cabin, you get an uh, exclusive Q&A with Chris Jericho, an uh, exclusive picture with Chris Jericho, lots of uh, extra stuff for you. Go to ChrisJerichoCruise.com and sign up for the pre-sale booking now. All right. Uh, coming up on Wednesday, one of my favorite new horror movies that I've seen, one of the creepiest horror movies I've ever seen, is called Terrifier with the uh, newest sensation of serial killers following Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers, Leatherface. Now we have Art the Clown. Go Google Art the Clown right now and see what you find. It is a creepy, creepy looking guy and one of the creepiest movies I've seen. It's called Terrifier. It's on Netflix right now. Rich Ward showed me this movie just before Christmas when Fozzie was touring Canada because he knows I love horror films. And after I saw it, uh, I just freaked out. I've watched it eight times ever since then. I'm obsessed with Art the Clown. I love this movie. David Howard Thornton plays Art the Clown. He's going to talk about the crazy, gruesome scenes, the makeup that he went through, the concept behind Terrifier. If you love horror movies, which I know a lot of you do, go watch Terrifier this weekend on Netflix and join me here on Wednesday for Art the Clown himself, David Howard Thornton and Terrifier. Come up on Wednesday. Have a safe weekend. Stay away from Art the Clown. Uh, be cool. In the meantime, in the between time, stay hard, stay hungry, peace, love, and hugs, and a big yeah, boy, and follow Todd's advice to become a billionaire so you can lend me a couple million bucks. See you on Wednesday.